This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We read this morning from two places in Holy Scripture. We read these two, uh, from these two passages... Keep in mind the title of my address as it has been announced. Read with me the word, considering how this word applies to the topic at hand. First we read from the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah, the first 16 verses. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there his word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates, to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye truly amend your ways and your doings, if ye truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come? stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Go ye now into my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done unto Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Close our reading of Jeremiah 7 at that point and turn now to a brief 
passage in Galatians chapter 5. Only the verses 13 through 16. Galatians 5, 13 through 16. You will notice that the same subject is addressed by the apostle as is addressed by the prophet in Jeremiah 7. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We read God's word this far. My subject this morning is the threat to sanctification of antinomism, or as it is otherwise called, antinomianism. I make bold to say that the subject of this speech could well be the topic of an entire conference. So important is the subject to the truth of sanctification, and indeed to the entire gospel of salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. So prominent and extensive is the subject in the whole of Scripture. So frequent and dangerous is the evil of antinomism in the history of the church. So threatening is the heresy to the Christian church and to the individual child of God today. This topic could be the subject of an entire conference. Do not be afraid. By well nigh heroic effort, I keep my speech this morning within bounds. But the subject virtually demands broader and longer treatment than I can give it in the appointed hour. Speaking loosely. With this subject, we come to a false doctrine and a controversy that are of special interest and concern to me have been from the very beginning of my ministry, now some 51 years in length. I graduated from the Protestant Reform Seminary, and the instruction of the Reform theologians, Herman and Homer Huxima, prepared to do battle with the heresy of Arminianism and its doctrine that salvation is conditional depending on the will and obedience of the sinner. I knew a little about antinomism, but barely more than the name and the faintest outline of its teachings. My first charge was a congregation in the west of the United States, which had only recently united with the Protestant Reformed churches. 
The members of that congregation in those days had all only very recently separated from a church that was heavily influenced by a German Reformed theologian by the name of Kohlbrugge, Hermann Kohlbrugge. Kohlbrugge's teaching and theology suffered basically from the error, not of Arminianism, he was very strong on salvation by grace alone, but of antinomism. And his weakness with regard to antinomism is evident in his published commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. His commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, Kohlbrugge's, is strong on the knowledge of misery and on the knowledge of redemption. But it is weak on the third part of the Catechism concerning a thankful, sanctified Christian life. There is a question and answer, and his commentary has the form of questions and answers. There is a question and answer at the very beginning of Kohlbrugge's explanation of the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism that indicate his weakness with regard to a sanctified or holy Christian life. The German theologian asks as an introductory question to the third part of the Catechism in German, what is the most thankful creature of God? You answer that question for yourself in your own mind. Kohlbrugge's answer to that question is, Der Hund, the dog. Such an answer to such an important question is at the very least a disparagement of the truth of thankfulness, which embraces the entire holy life of the believer. Still more, that answer might be an implicit ridiculing of the glorious work of salvation that consists of sanctification. Kohlbrugge had disciples in the German Reformed tradition, and as is always the case, one's disciples carry his teachings, including his mistakes, further than the original teacher took them. The minister of the German Reformed Church, from which the members of my first charge were expelled, the minister of their congregation developed the error of Kohlbrugge much further than Kohlbrugge himself took that error. Some of the disciples of Kohlbrugge denied that there is any spiritual power or spiritual life for a holy life in believers whatsoever. In fact, the members of my first congregation had been expelled from the German Reformed Church in Nebraska, of which they were members, because they confessed with Lord's Day 45 of the Heidelberg Catechism that as believers they were required and able to pray. The eldership in that church 
denied that God, and now I quote the Catechism in question 116, will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires ask them of him and are thankful for them. End of quote. The eldership of that church denied that. The leading elder in that consistory responded roughly to the members of the church who confessed question 116 of the catechism that our prayers are so sinful that they do not get beyond the ceiling of the room in which we utter our prayers, much less make their way into heaven. Now this teaching had been powerful influence on the members of my first charge. They had had an influence upon these members for a long time, even for generations. My struggle, therefore, as a pastor and preacher for the first 11 years of my ministry was not with Arminianism, Arminianism which makes good works a condition of salvation. But my struggle was with antinomism, which denies that the good works of the child of God are necessary or even possible. Antinomism, which reacts strongly against the must or ought or duty of the law of God. For that struggle, I was not well prepared. I came out of seminary ready to do battle with Arminianism, but hardly giving consideration to the possibility of a struggle with antinomism. I had to devote myself to a concentrated study of church history and of the creeds and especially of the Bible in order myself to understand that particular false doctrine, and then to expose it and root it out of the congregation by my preaching and teaching. I have a special interest in the subject at this meeting of our conference. Scripture recognizes the false doctrine, although not by the name antinomism. It recognizes this teaching as a real threat to the gospel and to the church, and Scripture condemns this error. Scripture does this in the passage we read this morning, Galatians 5, verses 13 through 16. In fact, in the entire last part of the fifth chapter of Galatians. In the words, quote, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, end quote, in verse 13, Scripture takes note of the error of antinomism. Scripture indicates that antinomism is a real threat to the Church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and Scripture exposes the nature of the error. The nature of the error is that the error uses true Christian liberty 
That is, our freedom from the requirements of the law as meritorious of salvation, or as though our salvation depends upon our obedience to the law. Antinomism uses true Christian liberty as an occasion to yield to our sinful human nature. Now what is especially noteworthy about the warning that the Apostle gives against antinomism in Galatians 5 is this. The Apostle, who has devoted the entire letter to the Galatians to a condemnation of the teaching that one must obey the law for righteousness and salvation, does not permit the error of nomism, that is, depending on the law for salvation, to drive him into the opposite error of antinomism, which I may roughly describe here as the utter rejection of the law of God. The apostle maintains the law and its requirements. I quote, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, end quote. Galatians 5, verse 14. You will recognize there is no abolition of the law, no utter doing away with the law, but rather the fulfillment of the law. Walking in the Spirit, which is the exhortation of Galatians 5, verse 16, evidently does not mean repudiating the law of God, as is the fundamental error of antinomism. We should understand, first of all, what antinomism is and how it operates as a threat to the Church of Jesus Christ. Antinomism, or antinomianism, is the heresy of rejecting the law of God. It is the rejection of the Ten Commandments and the rejection of all demands to live a holy, obedient life. The name of the error clearly expresses the nature of that error. Anti means against or opposed to. And nomos is the Greek word in the New Testament for law. An antinomian, therefore, is one who not only does not honor the law of God, but opposes it. The antinomian cannot say, and never does say, with Psalm 119, Oh, how love I thy law! But antinomism is not simply the error of rejecting the law of God, as also a rebellious unbeliever despises and rejects the law of God. Rather, antinomism rejects the law of God on the ground 
that salvation is by grace alone. And the antinomian claims that this gospel of salvation by grace alone does away with the law in the life of the church and in the life of the believing Christian. It is the position and argument of antinomism that grace rids the church and rids the Christian of the law. Grace abolishes the law of the Ten Commandments. And this, you must appreciate, is exactly the power and threat of antinomism to the Christian church. Grace and law are seen by antinomism as opposites, indeed as implacable enemies of each other. The claim always of the antinomian is that he or she, and I use the female pronoun here advisedly, that will become clear later on, the antinomian claims always that he is defending the gospel of grace. And the charge always by the antinomian against one such as myself who teaches the place, the important, necessary place of the law in the life of the believer is that he is guilty of legalism or guilty of justification by works gross wickedness, of course, that the Reformation opposed in the Roman Catholic Church, and the corruption of the gospel that is exposed, especially in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. In one of the historical controversies over antinomism that I will describe later, the antinomians accused their opponents of teaching a, quote, covenant of works, end quote, instead of the covenant of grace. And by covenant of works they meant a covenant that teaches that you merit eternal life by your works, by your obedience to the law. Now there is a very real danger of teaching justification by works and of teaching legalism. And because the Bible does condemn all teaching that places Christians under the law, antinomism is a real threat to the church that confesses salvation by grace alone. Antinomism, I repeat, rejects the law of God and the teaching of the law of God the law of God of the Ten Commandments in the church because the church is saved by grace alone. Exactly because antinomism rejects the law of God, specifically regarding the Christian life, antinomism always is or leads to a weakening and then a corrupting of the Christian life of holiness. For this reason, the error of antinomism is rightly an aspect of our conference, the theme of which is holiness 
of life. Antinomism is a threat to sanctification and the life of holiness. In its most advanced form, antinomism is the error of teaching that the believer may and even ought to sin freely and grossly in order to emphasize that salvation is not by works, but by grace alone, not at all by our own good works. In the Apostles' words in Romans 3, verse 8, describing this very error, antinomism is the war cry, quote, let us do evil that good may come, end quote. Antinomism is described in the Apostles' words in Romans 6, verse 1, which has a question form in the original, but which expression is, continue in sin so that grace may abound. That's the extreme form of antinomism. And I want to note at the very outset of this address, the Apostles' response to the expression of antinomism in those two passages, Romans 3 and Romans 6. As soon as he has described the error of antinomism in Romans 3, let us do evil that good may come, the apostle says about those who teach that doctrine, whose damnation is just. The apostle's response to the second expression in Romans 6, continue in sin that grace may abound, is God forbid, Romans 6 verse 2, the strongest expression of condemnation in the New Testament Bible. So wicked is the heresy of antinomism. That antinomism is a real and grave threat is evident, first of all, from church history. And now I give a brief lesson in church history with regard the appearance in church history of the error of antinomism and the condemnation of it by the church and her sound theologians. Antinomism appeared already in the time of the apostles, as I will demonstrate a little later when I note the condemnation of the heresy in the Bible. It appeared also in the early post-apostolic church. Sectarian groups arose early in the post-apostolic church teaching and practicing the freedom to sin freely and grossly as the implication, the practical implication of the Christian gospel that we are saved by grace alone. In those early days, leading churchmen and theologians opposed these antinomians, insisting and proving that the salvation that is in Jesus Christ includes and emphasizes holiness of life. Understandably, the error appeared more prominently and in more clearly defined form at the time of the Reformation. I say understandably, because antinomism is always a perversion 
of the gospel of salvation by grace. It is really a cancerous growth on the body of the gospel of grace. And the Reformation was the proclamation of the good news of salvation by grace alone. It's understandable, therefore, that Satan would place this cancerous growth upon the gospel at the time of the Reformation. Luther himself was confronted by this heresy and its unholy behavior, especially on two occasions. We Calvinists love to learn from Luther with regard to this truth as with regard to many other truths. One of the occasions of Luther's confrontation with antinomism was the debacle of Munster in Germany. More was involved there than only antinomism, but antinomism was an important aspect of the event. A group of men seized the city of Munster and indulged in a riot of unholy behavior, including polygamy, going about in public naked, and engaging in all kinds of sexual filth. That was antinomism, because the leaders encouraged and justified their unholy behavior by appeal to the truth of salvation by grace alone. In the words condemned by the apostle, the leaders at Munster said, we are delivered to perform these abominations. Hasn't Luther been proclaiming justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law? It follows, therefore, that we may thus sin freely. Luther repudiated antinomism as it took form in Munster. And his repudiation was evident from his searing condemnation of the goings-on at Munster and his much-criticized appeal to the authorities to put down the revolution, which had a civil form as well, put down the revolution in Munster with brutal force. It is likely that Luther was extremely harsh on this occasion because he recognized that the Munster antinomians claimed to be exercising the liberty of life that Luther himself had given them by his gospel of grace. In any case, Luther's response demonstrated that the great reformer rejected antinomism as the implication of the gospel of grace. More clear-cut during the reformer's own life was the antinomian teaching of one of his own colleagues in the Protestant church, a certain John Agricola. Agricola's main opposition to the law was his denial that the law should be preached in order to give believers the knowledge of the misery of their sinfulness and sins. According to Agricola, we do not come to the knowledge of our sins and sinfulness by the teaching of the law, but we come to the knowledge of the misery of our sin only by the preaching of the gospel. 
Even though Agricola mainly opposed the law as the teacher of misery, he also denied that the law serves as the guide or rule of the Christian life, the so-called third use of the law. Agricola simply opposed the preaching of the law in Protestant churches. Agricola was anti-nomos, against the law. What made his error truly antinomian was Agricola's argument that it is the gospel of grace that does away with and abolishes the law. And then Agricola appealed in his own defense to the strong statements of Luther himself against the law. But when he did that, Agricola failed to recognize one important truth. Luther was strong in his condemnation of the law with regard to the possibility of the laws being the basis of our justification and salvation. But Luther did not oppose the law as the revealer of our misery and as the guide of a Christian life. Luther condemned Agricola's antinomian theology in a powerful work, well worth your reading and available to you, entitled Against the Antinomians. Against the Antinomians. <coughs> With characteristic insight, Luther called Agricola and his antinomian comrades, now I quote Luther, fine Easter preachers, end quote, but quote, disgraceful Pentecost preachers, end of quote. The meaning of Luther, of course, was that Agricola taught redemption through Christ, sealed by the resurrection, but Agricola refused to teach sanctification by the Spirit. He was an Easter preacher, but not a Pentecost preacher. Luther then charged that Agricola, quote, dared to expel the law of God from the church and to assign the law to city hall, end quote. Luther asked, quote, how can one know what sin is without the law, end quote. Something is noteworthy about Luther's polemic against antinomism as taught by his colleague Agricola. And that is that Luther stressed the use of the law to make known to us our misery, but did not emphasize very strongly the use of the law as the guide to a Christian life, as the rule of the holy life of the believer. Now Lutheranism has followed this lead of its great teacher by excluding the so-called third use of the law altogether. Maybe I should say something about these three uses of the law. In the Christian church traditionally the law has been assigned three uses. First of all, it keeps order in civil society. Second, it makes known to the believer his misery as a sinner. And third, it serves as a guide or rule 
for the Christian life. Luther was very strong in emphasizing the second use of the law to show us our misery, but not so strong. That's not the same as saying he denied this, but not so strong in emphasizing the third use of the law. And Lutheranism has followed Luther to this extent, taking their teacher even further than he went, that Lutheranism does not recognize the third use of the law. Lutheranism teaches basically only the second use of the law, to make known to us our misery. There was an amusing happening in the life of my wife and me that brought out this weakness of Lutheranism with regard to the law. After we had been in our first charge some eight or nine years, my wife's obstetrician had got to know her and me quite well. One Sunday morning after the morning service, my wife and I, for some reason that I cannot recall, but it was not in violation of the fourth commandment, I assure you, found ourselves walking down the main street in Loveland, Colorado. And there, parked at the curb, was the vehicle of my wife's obstetrician, to which was attached a very large and impressive motorboat, which no doubt we had significantly contributed to as regards its purchase. The obstetrician stepped out of the store in which he had been and saw us and recognized us and he smiled and said, you know, we Lutherans do not hold to the third use of the law. On a Sunday he was about to go water skiing and boating with his boat and he was well aware of the difference between the Reformed and the Lutherans with regard to the observance of the Sabbath day. Calvin also contended against antinomianism in Geneva, and he contended against it nearly all his ministry. Calvin referred to the antinomians as the libertines. The name for these heretics was apt. In general, the libertines claimed the liberty to sin freely. Such was their doctrine of salvation. And I mention this also because this sheds more light on an erroneous explanation of the seventh chapter of Romans, to which reference has been made time and again at this conference. Such was the doctrine of salvation of the Libertines in Calvin's Geneva that it divided each of them into two distinct beings, a spiritual man and a fleshly man. These antinomians or libertines claim that they were two distinct human beings. They were on the one hand a spiritual man and on the other hand a fleshly man. These libertines argue that the spiritual man could not sin could not sin. Being saved, they were spiritual, 
and sinless men. But at the same time, these libertines taught that their fleshly man still sinned. And since what their fleshly man did did not affect their spiritual man, they could and did indulge freely in grossest acts of uncleanness, especially drunkenness and fornication. Always the antinomian appeals to salvation by grace as an excuse for sinning freely, indeed as a God-given warrant for living an unholy life. Against these libertines, Calvin wrote a powerful treatise titled Against the Fantastic and Furious Sect of the Libertines Who Are Called Spirituals. Calvin identifies the libertines with the antinomians condemned in 2 Peter 2 and in the Epistle of Jude. In connection with this conference, I recommend that you read carefully 2 Peter 2 and the Epistle of Jude. Calvin charges the libertines with leading simple folk, quote, into dissolute living, end quote, with teaching that, quote, each might indulge his appetite, abusing Christian liberty in order to give free reign to every carnal license, end quote. And Calvin accused them of quote, overturning human decency, end quote. Calvin concludes his condemnation of the libertines with an exhortation to the saints, to us, quote, let us be on guard against profaning ourselves, since it has already pleased God to call us unto sanctification, end quote. With that, we might well take our leave presently of this conference with these words of Calvin ringing in our souls, young and old alike. Let us be on guard against profaning ourselves, since it has already pleased God to call us unto sanctification. And to nomism or libertinism is opposed to sanctification. And I might note here that Calvin was the theologian of sanctification. When we describe Calvin according to his teaching that most properly characterizes him, we pro probably describe Calvin as the theologian of predestination. That is not how he was known in his own time, and that is not how he is known even today, by theologians who study him. Calvin is known as the theologian of holiness. That marked his ministry above all else. And that is the quality of his teaching and writing that stands out to the present day. I continue this brief history lesson with regard to the heresy of antinomism, and especially notable and known instance of antinomism in the history of the church was a controversy in New England in the year 1636 to 1638. 
This controversy raged in the Puritan community soon after the Puritans had fled England for the New World to establish their city of God in the New World. The leading proponent of the antinomian heresy was every minister's worst nightmare. She was a well-read, knowledgeable, apparently devout, eloquent, but heretical female. In this case, it was the Mrs. Anne Hutchinson. She influenced and thus gained the support of one of the main ministers in the New England colony, the Reverend John Cotton. This lay female theologian taught, contended for, and spread through the church the following doctrines. First, salvation is by grace alone, without any works whatsoever. Mrs. Hutchinson emphasized that the covenant, which was vitally important to the New England colony, is a covenant of grace. But this implies, according to Mrs. Hutchinson, that there is no place at all for the law of God in the Christian life. The law does not make known to us our sins. The law is not a rule or guide to the Christian life. According to Mrs. Hutchinson, and now I quote her, a Christian is not bound to the law as a rule of his conversation, end quote. Conversation meaning behavior. And then in slightly different words, quote, we are not bound to the law, no, not as a rule of life, end quote. Hutchinson and her faction denied that sanctification, that is, a life of good works, in obedience to the law, is an evidence of justification, an evidence of election, or an evidence of salvation. Sanctification, which is a life of obedience to the law, simply does not function as an evidence of justification. Here, Mrs. Hutchinson and the antinomians contradicted the Apostle James in James 2, verses 14 and following. Quote, I will show thee my faith by my works, end of quote, verse 18. And, quote, by works a man is justified, that is, in the evidential sense, and not by faith only, end quote, verse 24. As antinomians always do, Mrs. Hutchinson and the New England antinomians taught lawlessness, that is, unholiness of life. John Winthrop, another minister in the colony in New England, accused her and her followers, quote, of loose living, end quote. But my charge now concerns those antinomians' doctrine of unholiness, not their practice, but their doctrine. First, they denied any, quote, inherent righteousness, end quote. The Christian does not have any inner inherent righteousness. 
There is only the imputed righteousness of justification. That is, there is no work of sanctification in the child of God. No indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They held in the second place that, and now you see how the antinomianism develops, they held in the second place that, quote, the darker our sanctification is, the clearer is our justification, end quote. And then this, it is not transgression against the law to sin or break it, end quote. The meaning of this was that since the law is no rule for the believer's life, disobedience to the law cannot be sinful. The only act of sin is violation of the gospel, not violation of the law. Significantly, the New England antinomians denied all commands and all exhortations, including what appears to every rational human being as commands or exhortations in the New Testament Bible. Not only does the antinomian reject Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Old Testament statement of the Ten Commandments, but the antinomian comes finally also to deny any commands in the New Testament scripture. For example, the exhortation of Philippians 2 to work out our salvation is according to the antinomians not a command to the child of God. What in the world it is, if it isn't a command, I do not know. I don't believe they knew either, but they were content to say that it was not a command or an exhortation. Mrs. Hutchinson said that even the command to believe is the law and therefore is illegitimate. And if a preacher gives the command to his audience, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that command only, quote, killeth, end quote, does not function to arouse faith in the hearts of God's elect people. About the same time, as the antinomians in New England, prominent preachers in England, the homeland, were teaching virtually the same antinomism. I will only mention their names, Bride, Hussey, Eaton, and Trask. But let me indicate the antinomism of this party in England in the following quotation of Pastor Trask. Quote, the law is not to be preached to believers at all, nor is it a rule for believers to walk by. End of quote. About the theology of the New England antinomians, one critic in the 17th century already described the error as setting out, quote, such a fair and easy way to heaven that men may pass without difficulty. End of quote. And now you understand the title of my speech. A fair and easy way to heaven. That was the analysis of antinomism by an orthodox preacher 
in the 17th century. Antinomism sets forth a fair, a delightful, attractive, easy way to heaven. Live as you please. Do what you want to do. There is no rule. There is no standard. There is no God. You're saved by grace. A fair and easy way to heaven. Scripture warns against antinomism as a real threat to the true church. It warns against antinomism in Jeremiah 7, verses 8 through 10, which I read this morning. The people of Judah at that time deliberately, boldly, and grossly transgressed the commandments of the law. They stole, they murdered, they fornicated, and the rest of the list that we read this morning claiming that they were, quote, delivered to do all these abominations, end quote. Saved by the grace of God in order to perform this disobedience to his law. And they made this claim in the face of God in the temple in Jerusalem. Jehovah called this antinomism Lying words that cannot profit. Verse 8. Jehovah warned these antinomians in Israel of impending judgment for their doctrinal and ethical evils. Verses 12 and following. Jehovah instructed them that salvation includes sanctification, and sanctification produces not a despising of the law but obedience to the law. The same gross form of antinomism appeared in the early apostolic churches as the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 show. There were those in the church of Pergamos who held the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to seduce Israel to engage in idolatry and fornication. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. In the church of Thyatira was the female, and now you will recognize the aptness of my insistence on the use of the female pronoun as well as the male pronoun in referring to teachers who have troubled the church with antinomianism. I say, in the church of Thyatira was the female teacher called Jezebel, a self-proclaimed prophetess who taught the members of the church to know, quote, the depths of Satan, end quote, by committing idolatry and fornication. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. That is antinomism in its most developed form. Not simply the permission to sin, but the exhortation to sin. Know the depths of Satan. Indulge in wickedness as fully and deeply as you possibly can. And do that not simply with the motive to enjoy sin, 
but do that in order to realize the greatness of your salvation. That's antinomism. The idea is the more deeply you plunge into sin, the more fully you appreciate the salvation of Jesus Christ and God's grace in delivering you from sin. With that passage in Re Revelation 2 concerning the Jezebel in Thyatira, John Winthrop called Mrs. Hutchinson, quote, this American Jezebel, end quote. You have to appreciate John Winthrop, at least at this point. He didn't back down from this influential and dangerous female heretic. He called her the American Jezebel with his eye on the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul envisioned the antinomian heresy significantly as a heretical response to the doctrine of justification by faith alone that the Apostle was teaching. Some were slanderously reporting of the Apostle that he taught, quote, let us do evil that good may come, end quote, Romans 3 verse 8. About his doctrine of justification by faith without the law, the Apostle asks, quote, do we then make void the law through faith, end quote, Romans 3 verse 31. At the conclusion of his treatment of justification by faith, and not at all by works of obedience to the law, he asks in Romans 6 verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It is as though he asks, does my doctrine mean that you may go on with impunity and impenitently in sin and ought to do so? in order that the free grace of God may abound in your experience and in your life. Those questions by the Apostle raise these issues. And every one of us may answer each of those questions in his or her own soul. What do you think? Does the gospel of grace abolish the law? Does not ruling out the law in the matter of justification lead necessarily to unholiness of life? Indeed, does the gospel of grace not lead to the conclusion, let us sin freely and boldly in order that grace may abound all the more? And third, is the gospel of grace antinomian? The answer is no, emphatically no. The gospel condemns antinomism. The gospel vehemently damns and repudiates antinomism. Such is the sharpness and vigor of the instantaneous condemnation of antinomism as soon as it rears its head that it leaves no doubt whether the gospel of Christ utterly disavows antinomism. Antinomism is not an aspect of the gospel. 
The gospel does not lead to antinomism. Antinomism is as much an enemy of the gospel as is legalism. Scripture reacts to antinomism with horror and utter condemnation about those who charge that the gospel teaches, let us do evil that good may come, Paul says, whose damnation is just, Romans 3, verse 8. Not only does he repudiate the charge, antinomian, but he also judges the charge as a wicked attack upon the gospel. In Romans 3, verse 31, the apostle answers his question, do we then make void the law through faith? With the strongest denial in the biblical vocabulary, God forbid. The apostle adds that on the contrary, we establish the law. We who preach and confess salvation by grace alone establish the law, give the law its rightful, honorable place in the church and in the life of the believer. As for the Jezebel of Thyatira and her disciples, Jesus will, quote, cast her into a bed, end quote. And that bed doesn't have soft covers and a nice mattress, but it's a bed of burning coals. Christ will bring great tribulation on those who practice her antinomism, and Christ will kill her children, Revelation 2, verses 22 and 23. Upon those in the church who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, lasciviousness is another word for the working out of antinomism, which Jude judges as a denial of the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jude threatens the execution of judgment, Jude 4 and 15. So also, and that's our message, in the British Isles and wherever in the world our testimony goes. So also does the Reformed faith repudiate and condemn antinomism in all its forms, whether carelessness of life, as though condoned by the gospel of grace, or the fully developed appeal to grace as an occasion for lawlessness of life. As much as the Reformed faith opposes self-salvation, so much does it oppose antinomism. As much as the Reformed faith proclaims and defends justification by faith alone, so much does it proclaim and defend sanctification according to the law. As strongly as it rejects the law, in the grace of justification, so strongly does the Reformed faith insist on the law in the grace of sanctification, insist on the law as the rule of a holy life. The gospel does not, however, respond to antinomism by compromising the gospel of grace. That's a danger. The danger is that when antinomism rears its ugly head in the church, the church responds by preaching the law as the ground of justification 
or the basis of salvation, as though to frighten the people away from the error of antinomism. Paul didn't do that. He didn't react against antinomism by compromising the gospel of grace. He maintained the gospel of salvation by grace alone. For if anything, the gospel must respond to antinomism by proclaiming salvation by grace alone more vehemently than ever before. I face this question in my own early ministry. How shall I deal with the effects of the antinomian teaching that has prevailed in the German Reformed tradition, or at least in some parts? Shall I give these people a bigger dose of the law? Shall I hit the church, as it were, over the head with the Ten Commandments? Shall I begin to insist that justification is by the works of the law? That would have been as serious an error as was the error with which I was in combat. It is the gospel of grace that alone produces the holy life of good works. The Spirit works by the gospel of grace to make men and women holy and by no other message. Preaching justification by works and salvation dependent upon the law may make people moral, may scare some people into a decent life, may cause some people to get busy trying to earn their salvation, but none of these is a good life. None of these is a life of genuine holiness. Only the gospel of grace makes people thankful and produces the will and ability to perform good works of grateful love to God. Only a life of gratitude to God for his gracious salvation, grounded in the redemption of the cross, and originating in gracious election before the foundation of the world. Only the gospel of grace makes people thankful and produces a holy Christian life. And only that life is good in the judgment of God. The preaching of the gospel of grace instructs the congregation that the grace of God in Jesus Christ does not only deliver from the punishment of sin, but also from the ruling power of sin, and that the latter is as precious as the former. That is, the gospel just sanctifies us as well as justifies us. That's the response of the apostle to the antinomian error in Romans 6. To the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He responds, how shall we? who are dead to sin, live any longer therein, Romans 6, verse 2. If we believe on Jesus Christ so as to be justified or forgiven, we have been united to Jesus Christ by a living faith, and therefore we are dead to sin. Sin isn't dead. You know that. I know that every day by experience. But we are dead to sin. Sin is no longer our Lord. Sin no longer calls the shots in our life. Sin no longer rules over us. 
we can no longer live in sin. It isn't possible for us to do so. Dead to sin, we are alive to God. But henceforth, we should not serve sin, but serve God. Once we were slaves to sin, now we are liberated, free servants of God. The truth of Romans 6 concerning a holy life is perfectly captured by the Heidelberg Catechism in question 64. To the question, doth not this doctrine, that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, make men careless and profane? The Catechism answers, and the Reformed believer answers in the words of the Catechism, by no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Marvelous, compact, and accurate answer and response of the Reformed faith to the heresy of antinomism. In the preaching of sanctification, and in the life of sanctification, the law has a vital role and necessary place. It has a vital role and necessary place in addition to making known to us always the misery of our sinfulness. That vital role is not that the law justifies us, sanctifies us, or saves us. The law doesn't do that. Jesus Christ does all of that. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. And he saves us by the gospel. But the role of the law is that the law is the rule, the divine authoritative rule that defines a holy life, expresses the will of God for our thankful Christian life, and marks out the way, the narrow, often difficult way of salvation, the way to the celestial city. Thus, the law must be preached, and it is to be preached thus as law, as demanding, as forbidding, as the divine, you must, thou shalt, in the Ten Commandments, is not only, or even chiefly, you will, as a promise, but it is also, and chiefly, thou must, Thou art required by him who is God and who is now your God. There is no place for antinomism. As it is a pernicious heresy, so are its effects injurious. This is my last point of development of my topic, and I will be extraordinarily brief in explaining this last part. Antinomianism is pernicious in its effects upon the church and the individual believer. First of all, it is harmful to the people of God. It opens up to the church the practicing of sin and the turning again to sin's bondage. That's not pleasant. That's not fair. 
F-A-I-R-E, as they spelled it in those days. That's not enjoyable. That's destructive. That's miserable. That kind of life is shameful. It brings on a child of God who practices antinomism, the heavy chastisements of God. And if believers concede somewhat to the error of antinomism, they're going to perish in their generations. Their children will run where they only walked. They will go lost in their generations. And so long as a believer goes on living in disobedience, one of the commandments of God, he or she loses all assurance of salvation and is plagued by the fear of perishing in the wrath of God. The second pernicious effect of antinomism is that it is a scandal to the ungodly world that is watching the church and the children of God. They don't understand or pay any attention to what we say about justification by faith alone and the atonement of Christ, but the world does pay attention to how we are living and what we say about our supposedly Christian life. And if that world sees us profaning the Sabbath day, violating the marriage bond, drinking ourselves drunk every weekend, cheating and stealing, and generally living exactly the way the world lives, they will despise and ridicule our Christianity and its Christ. What's worse, that world of the ungodly will use our unholy behavior as an excuse for their rejection of the call of the gospel. They will stumble into perdition over our antinomian conduct. Look, they will say, not only do Christians live just as we do, but their Christianity is itself the basis of their unholy life. That's pernicious. In the third place, and worst of all, the pernicious effect of antinomism in the church is that in this way, our holy God is dishonored. All scripture teaches that our holy life and its good works glorify God that this is the supreme end or purpose of our holy life in the world. Why must we do good works? Asks the Catechism in question 86. And the answer is, in the first place, that he, God, may be praised by us. End of quote. As God is holy, so are we his children to be holy. Because he is holy, he will see to it by the work of sanctification that we are holy. God doesn't save only from the guilt and punishment of sin. God saves from sin, including sin's ruling power. God doesn't only save from sin. He also saves unto, unto holiness. Therefore, in order to glorify God, as is the strongest desire of everyone who has been saved by his marvelous grace in Jesus Christ. As he which hath called you is.
is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The way of salvation in this life, the way to God's heaven, the way to God, is not the fair and easy way of antinomism, but it is an off, often off-putting and difficult way, the way of obedience <coughs> to the law of God. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.